Welcome to the Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. Thank you for listening. It really does mean a lot to me. Uh, my guest today is Fuke Tran, who published a book just recently called Saigon, a story about his coming-of-age story, uh, moving here from Vietnam as a refugee and growing up in rural Pennsylvania. And you'll hear in the interview why today, May 4th, is the day that we uploaded his interview Love the book, love speaking with Fuchs, so I hope you enjoy the conversation. It's May 4th, so we're still in Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. Let's keep celebrating, let's keep elevating our stories, and again, thanks so much for tuning in, and here now is my conversation with Fuchs. Welcome, everybody, to Dear Asian Americans. I'm your host, Jerry Wan. Wherever you are may be, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you health, we wish you safety, and we wish you happiness. It's an interesting time right now that we're living through. Uh, we're recording this in the middle of April, and as we all have experienced by now, life is a little bit different, and as much as we talk about life going back to normal, um, normal isn't going to be what we ever imagined it to be. Um, life moves on. The world evolves. We all evolve. The world changes. And for those of you that are listening that were born stateside or have spent most of your lives here, um, what we're going through right now and we're thinking, oh my God, I, this is crazy. We're, we're being asked to do so much and live a new normal. Think about what our parents went through. Um, many of us come from families who decided to move here. And many of us are children of parents who had no choice but to move here just so that they could live. And we were plopped into communities that we were not familiar with. I myself, we were lucky to move to a city called Fullerton that still had a pretty strong Korean population when we moved in 1992. Um, yes, there was a little bit of uh, prejudice and, and judgment, but I didn't feel alone at school. Um, but for some of us, through the sponsorship program or through placement programs that the United States government provided in the 70s, which was an amazing program and so grateful that it existed, some of the downside was that families were being asked to live in areas that were so literally foreign that people didn't even know the names of the countries that we were from. And so my guest today lived that life growing up in rural Pennsylvania um, and recently wrote a book to tell that story of his coming-of-age story as the child of Vietnamese refugees. Um, the title of that book is Saigon, which phonetically sounds like the city, but it's actually the word Sai, comma, Gone, which I think is one of the coolest book titles I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, so with that, Fuke Tran, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me. You know, it's I didn't plan to start this podcast in the pandemic. Neither did you plan to release your book during the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, it's tough. Perhaps the upside is that both of our audiences have slightly more time on their hands. Sure. to read a book more than they otherwise would have yeah. or to listen to a podcast more than they otherwise would have. But one thing for sure is that it's given us a lot of time to introspect about what it means to be um, of this world, a community wherever we may live in, um, and really our place as Asians in America, Asian Americans, Vietnamese, Korean, mm -hmm. um, because what we're going through, um, it's no secret by now that we have seen far too many instances of being treated still other and uh, the perpetual foreigner of never really feeling alone. Um, with that in mind, even if we went back to our quote-unquote home countries or our birthplaces, would we feel at home there? I don't yeah. know. 
Um, tough mm-hmm. to say, but this is our home. Um, I'm in California. You're in Maine. Could not be um, further apart in the contiguous <laughs> United States. Yeah. Um, but thanks to this time and thanks to technology, here we are having this conversation. Um, I want to learn about Fuke uh, in the earlier years. Um, I alluded to it earlier um, in the introduction, um, but tell us a little bit about the uh, the journey here to America uh, for the Tran family. Um, how did it happen? Under what circumstances? And um, where did you end up living? Sure. Um, so my, you know, I was born in Saigon, Vietnam, so now Ho Chi Minh City. And um, my grandparents uh, worked for the U.S. Embassy there. And, um, you know, so, I mean, that was like their Willy Wonka golden ticket, right? Like when, when it all started falling apart, um, they were part of that initial 130,000 um, Vietnamese um, that the United States decided it was important to evacuate, um, which I think, you, you know, like the U S government is, has, is, and has done, you know, problematic things, you know, and questionable things. But I, you know, I think about that decision, you know, for Gerald Ford to think, oh, there are 130,000 people who were our allies. And if we just bail on them, like they will just be dragged to a ditch and shot. Um, so my family, my grandparents were, you know, they, um, were given birth to, you know, on a car, you know, to get out on some sort of transportation. Um, and so they rounded up, you know, I can't imagine what it was like to pick 12 people, you know, like, you know, they had a huge network of family members, you know, and, um, I don't know what kind of heart wrenching process they went through to be like, okay, you know, it's not like a kickball team, right. Where you're just like, okay, you 12, you guys are coming with us, everyone else. Good luck, you know, but that's what happened. Um, so yeah, we all, we were all like 12 of us, my mom, me and my dad, we're all like lined up to get on a bus, um, to an airfield. We got on the bus, but I was crying so much that, um, my grandmother was like, she was kind of embarrassed and she was like, you know what, like, let's get the next bus. This is not good. You know, like with the, you know, little Fook crying. And so we got off the bus. And then as that bus pulled away, it got hit by mortar fire. Like it blew up. Everybody on that bus died. And then we got on the next bus and then peaced out. Yeah. It was wild. Um, and so basically that, that journey, we kind of like hop skipped across the Pacific, like Guam wake. Um, and then the U S government had set up four, relocation camps for Vietnamese refugees, specifically in uh, Camp Pendleton in California. There was one in Arkansas, one in Florida, I think, and then one in um, Pennsylvania. And so we ended up in Pennsylvania. This is actually, you know, interesting in the process of, you know, reading a little bit about um, the the government's policy. There's There was actually specific federal government policy that was intended to keep Vietnamese from living together. Um, because they didn't want them to turn into these sort of ethnic enclaves. Um, and so the Vietnamese population that came here were specifically just spread all over the U S like literally like the real diaspora. Um, and so we were sponsored by this nice, you know, group of Lutheran families, you know, who came, um, and sponsored our family of 12. And, um, we moved to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is, so it's like a small working class um, town in um, central, south central PA, near like about half an hour from Harrisburg. So that's where we grew up. And, uh, you know, we were like the first uh, Vietnamese family to roll in there. Um, you know, it's funny, I was talking to um, the Vietnamese writer, um, Viet Tung Nguyen, 
And he was just like, why didn't you guys leave? And I was like, I don't I have no idea why, you know, because I mean, like you think about it now, right? You're like, oh, Orange County. It's like literally like a million Vietnamese people there. Um, but, you know, there wasn't any Internet. It was like the late 70s. So it's like, you know, if your whole sort of nucleus of 12, your family is there, like no one's going to tell you like, hey, you know what? There's like a ton of Vietnamese people in California or, you know, Northern Virginia or Dallas or whatever. Um and so, yeah, so we just all stayed. Um, yeah. You are here through sheer luck. Totally. Your entire family. Um, so if anybody ever gives you crap about crying, that's put things, puts it in perspective, right? It's just, yeah. it, it's wild. Um, your family is also here of great fortune based on your grandparents' employment with the U.S. Embassy um, of just being on the right side literally at the right time. Total um, luck, but yeah. also, but yeah, it's, it's, it's wild. Um, just the, the percentages and the probabilities of everything that needed to happen. Um, what, because of the fact that your family was able to move and live in America, thanks to a chain of generosity, uh, points, whether through the government or from, like you said, your sponsor, the gratitude towards America and your identity identity towards what Americans were, how was that discussion or how was that formed early in your life? Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's a, such an interesting question, Jerry. You know, I think like my parents um, were always incredibly grateful, like, um, you know, and rightly so, right. They were just like, we owe these people our lives, like, like very literally. And so, um, you know, baked into that meant that we we couldn't there was no room for any kind of critique or critical conversation about like yeah sure they saved our lives but you know what they they're also part of this like systematic racism or this that or the other you know what i mean like it just the like you know as you i think probably is true and you know for our parents generation like like the they always wanted to appear grateful you know and and never seem ungrateful um um, and I think they're highly aware of the power dynamic, right? In this country, right? Like, so like you're there to like appease white people. So don't like, don't make them angry and don't like make them think that you're anything other than incredibly grateful. And I think part, you know, and rightly so, like they recognize they're acutely aware of that easy come easy go, right? Like that mm-hmm. at, at one minute, you know, you can have a plate full of food in front of you and the next minute, right. like it can be gone. Um, so that was hard for me growing up because as a teenager in America, right? Like you're so you're raised to be a critical thinker and you're raised to like ask hard questions, or at least I thought I was, you know, and my parents were just like, we're not interested in that at all. Any kind of line of critical inquiry. Right. And the other side of it is fascinating. Um, I, I am not you know, a white person who grew up in America. Um, I was on the other side, right. Um, on, on the receiving end of, of comments and whatnot, but it's, it, this doesn't condone it, but it's understandable why, certain Americans looked at us differently with almost this arrogant look of you're only here because of our collective generosity. Mm-hmm. Therefore fall in line, do as we say, we know better than you. Mm-hmm. And we're not even going to give you the respect or the decency to learn about you because you were somebody that needed saving and only mighty America could have done so. Uh, particularly in a community like Carlisle, Pennsylvania, that was not as diverse as Los Angeles or New York City or any other big city. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, it was the 80s. 
There was no internet. Yeah. Yeah, no, like definitely not. Right. Three sources of news, right? right. And yeah. um, growing up there, um, did it get more diverse as you got older? Or were you always the one kid? And, and how did that affect your friendships growing up? Yeah, um, it did. It did a little bit, I think. I mean, um, you know, we there was an Army War College um, there, so there was like there were military families that would come through. Um, you know, I was the only Asian kid in my class till you know, I mean, probably th- till at least eighth or ninth grade, maybe. Like, uh, I, you know, I I'd have to go through my yearbook to think about that, you know, definitely through eighth grade, definitely through eighth grade, like in my grade, I was like the only Asian kid. And then I think like once you hit high school, you know, like more kids were coming in. So, but it was also like at that point, it was like the late eighties. So like there was like a second wave of like, you know, um, Vietnamese immigrants and also like just people, you know, moving to Carlisle, you know, there was a black population, a small black population in Carlisle. Um, and then very few Hispanic kids, you know, maybe like, one or two maybe you know and it was you know i think the town demographically was in the i couldn't find the statistics for that specific era um but i think it was like in the high 80 percent like 80 whatever percent white maybe or you know so pretty white i mean whiter than sort of the national demographic right it's like i think white people are like 60 something percent but yeah yeah. and there's there's a point in your life um, that you mentioned in a book that was pivotal in your um, self awareness and confidence building as you alluded to um, the power of words, uh, power of words from both a negative perspective because there's so much hatred that can be carried and displayed by simple singular word um, that kids who spew it out don't even know what it actually means. Um, but also the power of words to enact great positive change and to inspire and to, um, I mean, you wrote a book and we have a podcast. We, we believe in the power of words. For sure. Um, share with us that story. And when did you believe that your words actually mattered in this world? Yeah. You know, um, I think for so long, you know, like I just felt like my story wasn't interesting or important to anybody. And, um, you know, the, you know, two things happened, you know, you know, one is that, you know, my family, you know, I think generationally and also culturally, you know, there were like corporal punishment was just the norm, you know, like, you know, any like parents, grandparents, cousins, uncles, like they just would like just smack the shit out of you, you know, and, and nobody turned to, you know, nobody really was like, thought any that it was aberrant behavior. And then, um, you know, my, um, second grade teacher sort of like caught wind of this um because like my dad just like you know really like um beat me up pretty bad one day and uh like i couldn't sit down in school like i couldn't sit in my chair like it hurt so bad and uh my teacher you know found out about it and um you know in in my mind i was just like well like is she gonna like fight my dad because that's gonna be like super weird and you know like but she just came and she like yeah she like had a conversation with my dad and then my dad like stopped beating us and i was just like holy smokes like you can like just talk to somebody and like that like that was the first moment where i was like oh like you can use words and that can stop physical violence because like you know in your mind as a kid you're just like you know it's like it feels darwinian right like the like that only someone bigger and stronger than my dad could stop him um 
And so that really clicked. And, and that same year, you know, I wrote this like goofy story for Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving writing contest. And I was like, there's, you know, like, look at, you know, I, and I remember th- it was like a story about like, what are you grateful for? And, you know, I'm watching all my classmates, you know, like drawing these little pictures of like, you know, like houses and vacations and things like that. And I was just like, and, and I didn't know that at the time I, I wrote the story about how I was grateful that my grandparents got here from Vietnam mm-hmm. safely and it won the contest. And I was like, wait, what? You know, like I thought again, like I thought it was just like this, like kind of one-upsmanship, you know, like whoever writes about the coolest thing is going to win the contest, but for whatever reason, you know, so those two things were really pivotal for me and being like, oh, like words are powerful and we have to act accordingly. Right. Um, yeah. But it was also, which was crazy. I mean, because looking at it now and knowing what we know about life, um, as a slightly older folks, obviously, it's that that matters. Screw a vacation, right? Like, screw yeah, a toy. For sure. Um, it, it's family and those memories and that human connection. And then perhaps that's what your teachers and your administrators at your elementary school saw and said, mm. you know, here's a kid that's mature far beyond his age unknowingly because for him, it's family. You know, because if you grew up in America as, you know, a non-immigrant, non-refugee, it's no big deal. You know, grandma and grandpa are down the street or in mm-hmm. a town or state over. So that's amazing. You decided to um, continue your love of words and continue your love of language and studied something in college that most people, any people, of Asian American, <laughs> very few, I, I can't name a single one. Um <laughs> Share with us, I guess, you know, backing up a little bit to high school, uh, yeah. when did you discover um, that field of study? How did you fall in love with it? And going to Bard College, how was, <laughs> what? How did you decide that was a thing that you're going to uh, sure. major in? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, you know, I kind of, I left high school and, um, you know, I had this deep love of literature and then, you know, concurrently, I was also... I loved art and and I thought that I was going to double major in art and English when I went off to Bard. And um, when I got there, I just, I am going to be um, euphemistic here and be polite, but I, I did not, con- I didn't connect with my classmates, you know, like I was in English class and I was in art class and I, I was looking around and I, you know, like I think in my mind, I, I had built up like the college experience to be like, I'm going to meet my people. Like finally, like I'm, I'm going to find my tribe and these people are going to like love books and art as much as I do. And we're going to connect. And it was really quite the opposite. Like within like three months, I was like so depressed. I was like, Oh, like I want to drop out. Like it just didn't, it, there was no way that it was so built up in my mind, you know, having sort of escaped Carlisle that there was, you know, in retrospect, I recognized that nothing could have lived up to what I thought I wanted or was going to have. And um, so, you know, I was sitting there like it was like first semester of my freshman year. And I was just like, oh, God, you know, like, you know, feeling just so disappointed because I'd like built up what, you know, being a double major in art and English was going to look like. And it didn't look like that at all. Um, and I heard this kid talking about taking ancient Greek and he was just like, he was complaining about it. He was like, Oh my God, it's killing me. It's like the hardest thing I've ever done, you know? And uh, I might, I think I might have like oppositional defiance disorder or something. Cause I heard that and like my ears perked up. I was like, 
what's that? I want like, you know what I mean? Like it was like, yeah. okay, whatever. It's like, this is the hardest. I was like, okay. It's like, oh my God, it's the spiciest thing I've ever eaten. I'm like, shit, give me that. I right. want to try yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> level, so, level 10, whatever level. Well, 10 yeah, yeah, yeah. Do. I'm always trying to level. I'd rather fail, you know what I mean? In trying to level go big, up. go big. Why not? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I signed up for ancient Greek and uh, I would like, it killed me. I mean, it really like literally like I went into Greek, not where like I didn't have corrective eyewear and like I studied so hard. Like I literally like went blind, like, like at the end of freshman year, I was like, oh my God, everything's blurry. I can't see. And I had to get glasses and it was hilarious, but I loved it. Uh, it was literally like the hardest thing I'd ever studied. And, um, but I had a real aptitude for it. And, and it was like a small department and like the professor was cool and the kids were fine. You know, like my, my cohort of um, peers in that department were great. So I just, I did, so I was like, yep, I'm switching over to classics, classical languages and literature. So I did Greek that first year. And then I actually went and did Sanskrit my second year, like wow. concurrently. And then I did Latin and then I, I minored in German. Um, because my plan was to go to grad school in Germany. So I was like, well, shit, I got to learn German. So I like did <laughs> German immersion. It was wild. Yeah. Um, so I just kept like piling on the languages. I mean, you're kind of like on a roll at that point, you know, like where you're like, all right, just bring it on. Um, yeah. My parents were like, what, you know, my grandmother, especially, you know, because like when I was like, oh, I'm learning Latin, you know, um, she was like, what are you going to, are you going to like be a priest? I was like, no. She's like, are you going to be, are you going to be an exorcist? I was like, no. Um, I don't know. I'm just, I, I was kind of in the moment. I definitely did not have a plan. Um, and then I went to grad school um, to, and then, and then moved to New York city and taught Latin in high school. Yeah. I guess that was my next question, or I guess most people are wondering, like, what do you do with that education, right? Because it's not, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, you know, thank, thank you, capitalism. We live in a world where yeah. arts, particularly classics, um, not often or highly rewarded in, in a capitalistic society, other than go teach other people the yeah. same thing, which is... For sure. Um, it's like a Ponzi scheme. It. It's a total Ponzi scheme. <laughs> you know, it's not, not a very big one either. Not no, a very no, profitable one. No, no, no. no, no. Um, sh shrinking small market pyramid. share. Yeah, small market um, share. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk geography because you spent the very many of your years in uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And as yep. we discussed, not very diverse. Um, Bard College, for those of you who are unfamiliar, is in upstate New York. Um, literally on the Hudson in a city called Annandale on Hudson, uh, mm -hmm. close to West Point. Mm -hmm. um, not not the diversity capital of the world either. Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually down to New York City, where it is literally the most diverse place in the universe. Mm -hmm. um, talk, talk to me about your feeling of belongingness in those three different places as you progress through life. Yeah. Um, you know, I think yeah, that's a great, that's such an interesting question. Um, you know, I think in Carlisle, um, and I'll say this for what it is. And, and, um, I think you, you know, I mean, the U S is still predominantly white, um, you know, and, and obviously like demographers are watching that shift a little bit, but I think, I think it's such a, for me, at least it's such an important survival skill to navigate whiteness. Mm -hmm. You know, I was actually talking to one of my white friends and I was just like, you know, it's like, I have like a PhD in navigating whiteness. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, and like, because that's what you do to survive. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah. it's, it's uh, like when you realize that like, there's like kind of like a, it's like code switching, right? Like, I mean, that's like a newish or, you know, like within the last like 15 to 20 years, but I mean, like we, everybody was doing it before, you know I mean? Like mm -hmm. black culture knows how to code switch, like black culture knows how to talk to white people. And then they know how to talk at the barbershop and like Asian people do the same thing. 
you know. We literally um, call that white voice. <laughs> right? Like, you know, you're hanging out with your friends and then your work calls you and you're like, right. you know, you, right. we, it's instinct and we don't even know we're doing it. That's right. That's but right. If you somebody's learn looking at you, they're like, That's right. what the heck? Why do you talk yeah. like that? Totally. You know? Totally. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. Wild. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think like I was really, I mean, for better or for worse, like I'm, I'm very comfortable around white people. Um, and I, you know, I mean, just because that was the environment that I grew up in and the, the schools that I went to, yeah. even at Bard. Um, and in fact, like New York, I was just like, holy shit. Like, it's like just every kind of person like ever you know what i mean it was it was kind of amazing i loved it um you know and, and when we left new york to go to maine uh, which is the second whitest you know state <laughs> in the country like a lot of my new york friends were like are you like nervous and i was like Psh. i was like i'm just like going back to the mothership you know what i mean like i don't like it's I'm just back to square one it's totally fine you know um it, you know and then there it, it's you know i mean there's you know we have pockets so, you know we have like uh, like ethnic restaurants here and stuff like that and that's fine and you know honestly like i miss the you know the food is more important to me frankly than you know it's like with with technology now and you know it's like it's easier to connect with people and find people in your cohort or if you need sort of a place of um, community like that's easier to find you know sort of inter on the internet or just even on the yeah. phone or texting a friend you know because like you you know let's face it i mean like you know like if i want like a good ben me or pho or whatever it's you know <laughs> like you can't get that on the internet like <laughs> i need that in town but um yeah it's yeah you've lived your entire life in this world of expression um you know you you found this gift that your words mattered um turning a negative into a positive in second grade um at a, at a very early age um, then you went to really the root of all words and studied languages and, and classics that define a lot of what we believe and, and philosophize about. Um, and then you also found, um, and as, if you're watching the video and not listening to the audio, you, you see on, on his arms um, tattoos, which is another form of expression um, through artwork and through however you define it, because there's no rules in tattooing. Um, was there a point, was there a singular moment that kind of sparked your interest in getting tattoos? And when was the first time you got one yourself and then decided to apprentice to learn how to then give other people tattoos? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, tattooing was like always a huge part of like the, like that punk subculture, you know, but it costs money. And uh, I mean, like, I, we, I, didn't, I didn't have any money in high school to spend on tattoos. Um, you know, like there was this like guy in our town or two towns over and he did tattoos, but they were really bad. And he would you would actually do it for trade. <laughs> Like you would like you could bring him a toaster oven and he would tattoo you for it. And I was like, no, I was like, not I'm not going for that. Um, so, you know, a bunch of my friends were getting tattoos. But I was like, you know, I think I'm going to wait till like one, I have money and two, like the guy is better. And uh, so I got tattooed at Bard. Um, there were like these like traveling tattoo guys that rolled through. And I was like, you know what, like. I, I can get a cash advance on this like emergency credit card that my dad gave me, you know, it was like literally like, you know, if you need to get an appendectomy, use this credit card, you know, and I was like, cash advance, I'm getting a tattoo, you know, and oh, uh, man. yeah, so I got tattooed by these guys. And then I just struck up a friendship with one of them. And uh, um, we stayed in, he was from New York City. And then we stayed in touch. And then I would 
travel to New York to get tattooed by him. Um, and then in my last year of grad school, he um, sent, you know, this is like pre-internet. He like called, called me and he was like, Hey, listen, my, the shop that I'm working at is going to look for an apprentice. Uh, you should apply. Huh. You know, and I was like, okay, you know, he's like, he's, you know, you're like super into tattoos and you're getting heavily tattooed. You know, why don't you look into it? So like I, I drew up this portfolio and yeah. I mailed it, I mailed it to New York city. And then I got the call two weeks later from the owner. He's like, Hey, I looked at your drawings. Looks pretty good. You know, move to New York city and learn how to tattoo. And I was like, yep, I just got to get my master's and I'll be there in like two weeks. And, uh, Oh, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah. And I was like, you know, and it was unpaid. So yeah. I was like, do you mind if I like work during the day teaching Latin and then I'll just show up at like 3 p.m. and then I'll just work till like 10 at night? He's like, no, I don't care. You know, I mean, it's like tattooing. They were like pirates, yeah. you know? So yeah, <laughs> I just did that. And uh, they just, did, I mean, they didn't care that like I had this weird, you know, teaching yeah. gig, you know, because I mean, they, the shop would like open at like noon anyway. So it's like I rolled in at three and I would just yeah. work till like 10 at night. <laughs> what, what was that like? Because I mean, you, you, you didn't quite live a double life, but you taught high school students during the day yeah. in, in a more "quote unquote" uh, I don't know, more respectable profession. And I, I say For that sure. with 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 uh, you know with a pinch of salt there. Um, and then you did your passion <laughs> job, right? Like right, right, right. Um, which part of the equation did you enjoy? Because you absolutely love the classics, and teaching students brings us joy that is is incomparable. Mm. Um, yet you were finding your own um, artistic craft and by learning and observing and just being around through just uh, osmosis and just being there. Um, did you think that you would actually have to make a decision at one point or another of picking one or the other? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if I, uh, it never came to that, you know, it never came to a head like in that way, like I, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, the things that did fall apart were like, you know, my like relationship with my girlfriend, you know, like it was literally, you know, I mean, I, you know, obviously that was, you know, uh, if she hears this podcast, I'm really sorry. Um, but you know, like I, it was like this trifecta of things, right. It's like, I'm like working during the day and I'm working at night and I like, I'm living with my girlfriend and like, I guess I made the choice, right. Or right. she made it for me, you know? And, um, and it wasn't as explicit as like, you got to pick a job and spend more time with me, but it was just like mm. things like the wheels were falling off anyway. Yeah. So I, you know, I was, you know, like, um, so no, no one told me that I had to pick either of the jobs. And, um, right. so I don't Interesting. know. Okay. Yeah. yeah Very yeah. cool. Um, and, and at some point you decided to move away from New York city and, uh, even further up the, the Eastern seaboard, um, in, into Maine. And, uh, what was the motivation for that? And, and, and you mentioned earlier your, your comfort in, because this is home for you, really, it's just a different kind of Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Mm, yeah, um, for sure. But having lived in New York city at the most, you know, diverse place in the universe, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, you, you, you mentioned your friends were like, Oh my God, are you scared to go back? But like, what went through your mind of, you know, I have the opportunity to go get the bomb ass bowl of pho or to get whatever <laughs> I want is a comfort food. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah. actively decide, no, I'm going to go live in a place where you and lobsters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a quality of life decision and it wasn't, you know, just around, you know, 
fun, but me, it was like, <laughs> it was like, I mean, you know, it's like, it's a grind living in New York, you know, like it's, yeah. you're running to stand still. And, uh, you know, my wife and I kind of looked at each other and we're like, you know, like it would be great to like own a home and it would be great yeah. to open up our own business and have kids. And, um, I just couldn't wrap my brain around raising my kids in New York city. It just yeah. it was, it felt daunting to me. Um, and you know, so we, we did a couple of visits to, you know, my wife is from Maine and, um, and so I just thought, yeah, I, I'll live in Portland. I mean, it, it seems great, you know, and people are, you know, nice and, you know, so I wasn't too worried about it. Um, okay. You know, it's like I, I dealt with so much sort of like overt, brutal racism, you know, growing up that like, I, I feel like I can pretty much handle anything else and it won't be, you know, how bad could it be? No, seriously. You know sure. what I mean? Like, it's like when, yeah. when like you've had it real bad, you know, like where people are trying to like beat you up. I was like, you know, yeah. <laughs> and also it's a different world now, right? Like we, I mean, the 2000s, yeah. you know, 21st century racism is, it's there, but it's, it's not like it was in the eighties. <laughs> sure. Um, well, well, the 2020 version of racism is also ugly, but we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, for sure. Maybe for sure. later. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which different <laughs> it's, 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 I think um, you, you mentioned a story about what you could possibly get away with. And that being the motivator at times of people deciding to do something or not. And that plays a large role in perpetrators of racism and hate crimes of what they generally think that they can get away with based on their perception of its social acceptability, um, which I think is what's driving a lot of the hate crimes today. Um, but I, I want to talk about the thing and that moment that led to you uh, 11 years later. Um, being a writer, because mm. it was in 2009, um, if I'm getting my uh, dates right, that you decided to audition or submit a interest form to speak at a local TEDx conference. Yeah, 2012. Uh, in your home yeah. state. 2012, yeah. okay. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. What was the point, I guess, what was the moment that you decided that you wanted to share anything at all? <laughs> and what was then the process of selecting a topic? Because to get selected for a TEDx, and even though these are all locally organized, the selection process is pretty similar in that it needs to be a theme and mm -hmm. the timing. And just it's not an easy thing to get, even mm. though there are more locally you know, organized events around the world. Um, take us through that process of, hey, I think I got a cool story that I want to share. And, and what sure. was that topic? Yeah. So, um in 2012, a friend of mine called me and he was like, I think I'm going to nominate you to speak at the TEDx conference that's coming up. And I was like, okay. He's like, is that okay? And I was like, sure. And he's like, uh, you know, and I was like, I just was like, you know what? Uh, you know, they might not even pick me. I don't know. And it's fine. You know, I'm, I'm busy. And uh, so I got the email. And they're like, you know, would you come and, you know, what's your pitch? And so I just thought, um, you know, because I was teaching Latin, you know, and Greek. And I was like, you know, like, I want to talk about like, you know, languages and grammar. I, I was kind of vague because I wasn't really like, you know, I just was, I just didn't, you know, it was like half baked. And they were like, oh, yeah. that sounds interesting. You know, and I think like they're on the surface of it superficially. They were just like, oh, like a Vietnamese guy who wants to talk about like grammar. Like that's kind of hilarious, right? <laughs> so they brought me in and they were like, and, you know, I got the email. I was like, oh shit. Oh, I guess I got to think of something to say. Um, <laughs> so I pitched him the idea of like, you know, um, you know, growing up speaking Vietnamese and, you know, knowing English and sort of like the, 
and really being in conversation with my dad and sort of talking about the disconnect that I had with my dad and how it felt like some of it at least was based in the language, you know, um, and like they were into it. So I gave the talk and then, you know, during the coaching process, the, the TEDx coaches and the organization have this refrain. They say, this is the talk of your life. Like this is like, this is the talk of your life. Like they just say it to you over and over again. And, and I think that the, the organization was trying to impress upon you how much they wanted you to prepare, right? Like they don't want you to get up there and like have it be a shit show. So like they really wanted you to bring it, you know, but I thought about like that, that refrain and I really took it like to the next level. And I was like, okay, this is the talk of my life. Like I'm going to take like all the Venn diagrams of my life that I've always compartmentalized and just like smush it all together. Like I'm going to talk about in 12 minutes, right? Like no pressure. So right. I was like, I'm going to talk about being Vietnamese, being a refugee, growing up in Carlisle, being, you know, bilingual. I'm going to talk about Star Wars. I'm going to talk about, you know, like Latin and Greek. Like just, I, like I it was like kind of like, you know, <laughs> it was like this like mashup, you know, like, you know, you know, the DJ girl talk. It was like literally like the girl talk version of my life where just like everything was colliding. And I was like, you know, and, and I just thought I'd go for broke, you know, because again, you know, it's like go big. And um, and the response to it was like really overwhelming. Um, and like I got my talk got picked up by NPR and people were just I was like, really? Like that? Like that's a thing? People like it? I just couldn't believe it. Um, and that's when like the seed was planted in my brain for like, oh, like maybe I have a book in me. <laughs> There's a, uh, a hidden gem in your TEDx story that um, took me a little bit of digging to sort of see the, the brilliance in it. Um, what was the name of the Ted X? Oh, uh, dark side uh, of the subjunctive. Oh, Oh, um, villages. Yeah. yeah was, was, was it villages? TEDx. Okay. Yeah. Oh, TEDx Dirigo is the main, uh, or locally made, organized Ted X conference. Yeah. And, yeah. and Dirigo is a Latin, Latin word for yeah. I lead. I yeah. direct. Yeah. I, I direct. Yep. I lead. Yeah. Which is to me beautiful because that was, symbolic time that you decided to write your own story Mm. to direct your own production that's now a book but also Mm. the seed that was planted for you to uh you've always known your story mattered but did it matter to the point that you needed to write a book and share with the whole world i think is you know nobody goes from zero to writing a book overnight right there's there's a process of trial and error and self-doubt and imposter syndrome and oh my god all these things and and then nobody certainly um unless you were already of fame and and uh influence and then you just put that attention against it you know people don't write bestsellers uh, off the top of you know anything it's Hmm. just something that you work towards so it's it's been a journey um, for for you to get there, and like you said, um, you were interviewed on NPR by Guy Raz, and then that's mm-hmm. somebody whose name, if you're in the podcasting, any fandoms like is is a household name, and 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 so um, before we talk about your actual journey of writing the book, mm-hmm. um, you mentioned something, uh, the two words that are special to your life um, in a number of different ways, and it's Star Wars. Um, cue the music cue the music we'll do the uh, the, the rising the scroll of, yeah right the scroll um, maybe we'll uh, air this episode on May 4th I don't know maybe maybe um, can only hope <laughs> how did Star Wars come into your life um, and given the relationship with Star Wars that you use now in uh 
your social media handles and then some of your publicly facing uh, handles or I guess identity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Share with us when Star Wars came into your life and why it was so cool to you then and how it had actually has helped form your identity, your your own unique Vietnamese American identity. I mean, you know, as a child of the late 70s, right, um, you know, sort of like solidly in that Gen X demographic, you know, like Star Wars is, you know, like it's, you know, sort of our cultural bread and butter. Like we're all or that, you know, we're all we all sit at the table of Star Wars, right? You know, to some degree, <laughs> if you're if you're of that certain generation and, um, you know, like for me, like at least as a, you know, obviously it's like cool as shit because it's like lasers and Wookiees yeah. and stuff like that. So like just as a little kid, you're just like, oh, my God, it's like the greatest thing I've ever seen. And. And um, it was always like the common denominator for me on the playground, you know, like it's Mm. like no matter, you know, no matter what our differences were, like we could always agree that we could play Star Wars and then like, okay, now we can like stop bullying you or like now we we won't shut you out because we need a stormtrooper to shoot. Okay, you be the stormtrooper. We're going to shoot you. You know, I'm like, sweet. All right. I get to play, you know, or whatever. (laughs) So, yeah. So for me, like it was always my love of star Wars is obviously like it, it's primal and like the lasers and aliens and stuff, but also like it felt really connective and like, it was a place where I could find community and like a sense of belonging, um, in a very real way. So, um, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) But, but, but it also, (laughs) it also helped you, uh, because when, when we transfer, not translate, but introduce our cultural names, into mm. what is arguably an American dialect. Mm-hmm, for um, sure. Our, our names are Romanized versions of how it is really written. In the Vietnamese language, it's even more interesting because letters are still used, but mm-hmm. they're just, they actually literally have different sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we, when we have our um, American friends or, or you know, just English-based friends who, who read our names or are given names written in English, Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't know how to pronounce it. They, yeah. you know, it's it's funny, you know, like oh, Chavskowski, no problem, <laughs> no problem. And they're like, but what, you know, yeah. um, right, 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 especially right. you know, like Vietnamese names have you know written in pronunciation is is so delicate. Yeah, and, and there's a, a way a to get gap. right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, t- tell me how uh, the particular character in Star Wars, uh, Luke Skywalker, helped not only help your friends pronounce your name, but now have taken on this, you know, I guess, uh, t- tangential yet concurrent identity for you. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, you know, my, my sort of social media hand, I mean, I've, I've always sort of introduced myself as Fook, right? Rhymes with Luke. And um, yeah. And, you know, so like my, my handles now are all like Fook Skywalker, because it sort of helps people navigate, you know, their way into figuring out how to pronounce my name. Because um, <laughs> like, it's not, you know, fuck skywalker it doesn't sound very cool (laughs) it sounds really angry right (laughs) and then um you know i mean i think like he's like the for me like you know prior to reading like let's say like mark twain or um you know jd salinger like he was the original like disaffected small town boy you Mm -hmm. know like he like really like i watched star wars and i was like oh he lives on like a redneck planet. Like he wants to get the <laughs> fuck out of there. I was like, me too. You know, like yeah. I just, I really connected to the emotionality of it. Like for me, you know, 
I think because I grew up in like a small all white town, like I think like the, yeah. the racialized piece just didn't even blip on my radar. I was like, I don't well, care if father issues too. We talked about <laughs> yeah, totally right. Yeah, like, yeah, really, that's and, like that. Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> and that too. Yeah, no, I mean that's so huge, and you know, it's a really very astute observation, you know. But I think. <laughs> You know, my my source of conflict was really like, you know, yeah, it was like it was like double like doubling down. Right. It's like, oh, like, well, at least in the first Star Wars, when you didn't know who his dad was, I was like, I want to get out of Carlisle. <laughs> like Carlisle was like literally like felt like tattooing to me for sure. So I identified very strongly with Luke. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> man, I, you know, I hopefully one day soon, not hopefully one day soon. Um We'll we'll get together and talk about this for hours on it. <laughs> for sure, so much there. Yeah, get um, your brother in. I want to talk to your brother too. <laughs> yeah, Jay, Jay, if you're listening, you might might have found uh, a bigger Star Wars fan than you. Who actually right now? <laughs> um, him and his wife uh, recently moved to State College. Um, oh for, no shit! Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. For her That's... for her position at, at Penn oh, State. Boy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know. That I don't know. Well, yeah. Maybe you can you can trade. I don't know. There's. Go to that one place. It's got that one. <laughs> it's, I, I think one of the things that would have been impossible, truly impossible, maybe improbable, but I would dare say impossible for our parents to imagine what we would have made of their sacrifice of coming to this country while their um, two main priorities were acceptance and survival. Um, maybe in the reverse order, survival first and acceptance. Um, for sure is for any of us to dare so greatly and audaciously to create artwork hmm. to create pieces of literature <laughs> and to have um, it be like a living right <laughs> and to have it be a living but also a job more, <laughs> absolutely but more important than anything which is our story yeah right this is yeah. not writing Star Wars about some mythical stuff that you made up in your head. The fact that we can write, and you've demonstrated by writing Saigon, that you can take the thing that actually was such a point of pain and shame and suffering and just something that many people who've gone through that journey maybe often would like to forget and what became of that sacrifice in your own journey growing up in this country is a book that once you publish a book, it doesn't go anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't, it's not the internet, but books never go away. Mm -hmm. um, you've put something into the universe that I genuinely believe will be so healing and therapeutic and tears of joy and... Um, and I'm not saying this to hype you up. Oh, I'm no, saying thanks, this because no, it's really true. Do. It's absolutely really true because oh, it's 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 true because we are living at what I consider the tip of the iceberg of the golden age of American Asian Americans saying, finally, my story effing matters. And I'm going to find whatever medium is comfortable to me, whether it is a podcast or a blog or an Instagram account or hmm. there greatly and go to the institution that is American publishing hmm. and go behind that castle, go into that castle and say, I have an American story that needs to be heard. Hmm. And then to get pieces of validation from media. Um, New York Times reviewed a book this week and it was your book. 
and slight jab to Sopan if you're listening. Sorry. <laughs> they didn't review the book of the guy who worked for the paper. Love you, Sopan. Uh, <laughs> me, me too. Sopan introduced Fuke to me and said, hey, you know, there was another Asian American book that I joked back. He texted me and I said, well, they're not going to review two Asian books in a week, so we got to deal with what we can. Um, oh, God, yeah. And, and the subtitle, it's a Misfits Memoir of Great Books, Punk Rock, and the Fight to Fit In, which it may not be punk rock. It may have not been great books, um, but we certainly in our own way um, fought to fit in. Um, you tell very, very vivid stories of your childhood and adolescence in this book. Um, so I want to know what actually after the MB or actually the TEDx talk hmm. after the, the rounds of interviews and media that you got and the, the confidence and the perspective that I gave you to, mm-hmm. uh, even there to write a book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what were some of the first things that you did in trying to recreate or recollect some of the early childhood memories? Because that's not easy to think about something that happened 30, 40 years ago. Sure. Um, so after the TEDx talk, you know, um, which, you know, the reception was, you know, far beyond anything that I could have anticipated. Um, you know, locally here, um, some people just started approaching me to do like live storytelling events, like moth, Mm. moth style things. Um, and they were small, you know, like audiences of like, you know, 50 people, 70 people. And, uh, um, you know, if you haven't figured this out, I'm kind of a, you know, I'm kind of a masochist. I'm like, oh shit, that's really scary. You know, speaking in front of people, super scary, like telling like a deeply personable, personal story. I was like, yep, I'm doing that. Like it, it's, um, you know, that scene in like Goodwill Hunting where he talks about how his dad comes home to beat him and he's like, always choose the wrench. You know, it's like a, it's a dark scene, but I'm, I'm that guy too. I'm just like, yep, whatever is terrible. I'm going to do that. So I just was like, yeah, gauntlet thrown. Like I'm going to do live storytelling. I'm going to tell real stories from the stage. And, um, so I, for a couple of years I did like live storytelling events. Um, you know, and honestly, like Jerry, like the thing that really got me into a place to be able to tell my story was, um, like therapy, you know, like I, Mm. when I found out that I was going to have kids or a kid first, um, you know, I thought, I really thought hard about like what kind of a parent I was going to be. And, Mm. um, and I realized that like, I like just, just saying I'm going to do the opposite of what my parents did is not a rule for parenting. You know, that's just like reactionary, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like oppositional. Um, so I like went to counseling and I was like dug really deep and like, you know, healed some stuff and, um, you know, made peace with some stuff so that I could talk about it and not feel angry or, you know, enraged or cry. Um, I mean like in public and, and draw whatever wisdom and insight that I could from it. Um, so really like big shout out to therapy. And I think, you know, like all joking aside, like I think uh, the Asian American community, Vietnamese community, I don't want to speak for all Asians or I'll speak for my family. They are not great at talking about their experiences. They're not great about talking about their feelings. They're not great about processing stuff. And for like, I think it's integral to having a healthy relationship and, um, you know, God, if like, if nothing else, like, I hope, I hope people can like, can go to counseling and like seek help. You know what I mean? Like it's, Mm -hmm. I think it's so critical. Um, and I, and I know that there have been news bits about like mental health, especially in the Asian community and how it doesn't, it doesn't get as much traction. 
um for whatever reason you know like maybe it's like a cultural thing where people feel ashamed and they're like oh i don't want to like seem like the crazy person who needs help or like we just sweep it under the rug and like but there's (laughs) you know what i mean like i don't i'm not sure but that was that was really critical for me like even more than the tedx talk or the live storytelling stuff was like or maybe in tandem right maybe both of those things um like but going to counseling and like sort of like working through my my shit was like really just so clutch yeah, and then um, and then I was approached by a literary agent um, who was like, "Hey, do you, are you interested in writing memoir?" And I was like, "You know, I saw your. This was like in 2016." So she was like, "I'm four years late to the game, but I just saw your TED talk and I love it. And are you interested <laughs> in writing memoir?" And I was right at that point, like in my brain, kind of being like, "You know, like when I'm retired, like and I'm 60 and I like have nothing to do, like I'll I'll write yeah. a book. Why not?" Um, but then it just kind of like again, luck. It's like getting getting off the wrong bus. You know, like I just happened at the right time um you know like i but if she, i'm always no go ahead go ahead if, if she contacted you in 2012 you would not have been ready to write a book not this yeah. one actually nope. maybe yep. a different book but not this one yeah i don't yeah i totally agree with you it's it's just luck i, I and i think it's part of the american myth that we love to think that like people are scrappy and like if they're success it's you know sort of self-made and like that you know this kind of like personal manifest destiny you know um because we love that like you know <laughs> and story. yeah it's and a it's, good story. It makes it achievable totally because anybody because then also right. if people fail we can blame them right sure. like there's personal accountability but i i just want to name how many times in my life i've been so lucky like I'm just in the mm-hmm. right place at the right time. And I, I can take no responsibility for that, you know, or like no credit. I can't take credit for it. Yeah. You know, obviously like I can be in a position where she's like, do you want to write a book? And I, and I send her a writing sample and she's like, this sucks. And cool. Right. Like that was the end of the story. But yeah. like I wrote a thing and she read it. She's like, this is actually really good. And I was like, okay, let's do it. You know, um, luck maybe, I don't know. <laughs> and in the process to uh, write, in the process of finding what to write about, mm. um, what kind of conversations did you have with your parents, if you did, mm-hmm. your yep. brother, yep. and people from various stages of your upbringing that helped you get perspective and clarity on how to write about that so many decades later? Yeah, I mean, a lot. there were a lot of things that I had talked about <clears throat> in therapy. You know, and honestly, like it, you know, it's not like, in any given calendar year in the memoir, there's maybe only like three or four events that happen, right. you know, and those were still very fresh in my mind. They generally, mm-hmm. you know, there's like kind of like funny stories and then like sad stories. Right. So it's like, they're kind of interspersed. Um, so, you know, it's like, even like for like, I don't know, like 1982, it's not like a detailed account of like sure. a week by week thing. It's just like, yeah. here are three stories that happened in 1982. Um, you know, I, I talked to my parents mostly just to get like certain, um, details, right. Like that, that was important to me. Um, and I checked in with my brother a couple times, like, Oh, do you remember this happening? You know, you know, in the interest of the memoir, like some timelines had to be compressed just for the sake of mm-hmm. the narrative. Um, and, um, you know, like probably like the, the biggest thing that happened, um, that like in terms of a time shift, that's like, not like historically accurate is like, I had to move like there's just one chapter that was too long and I had to move yeah. an event from that chapter to the following chapter, you know? So it's like, if you ask me like, Oh, did this happen? I'd be like, yeah, it absolutely happened. It just didn't happen in that, that year. Yeah. And that's just cause the chapter was just too long. Sure. <laughs> um, one, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious about as I was reading it, and it's something that we all grew up with. Um, you mentioned it earlier in the interview, which is uh, corporal punishment, right? Mm. Like just getting 
the shit kicked out of you uh, yeah. physically yeah. sometimes or like getting yeah, yeah, yeah. stuff thrown at you. Yeah. Um, you, you talked about, uh, you know, kneeling on, on a, on a bed of rice, which yeah. makes your did you guys do very that? painful. I did, uh, um, keep your arm parallel to the ground. And we're going to put a phone book on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. it was, uh, <laughs> do the plank before planking was an exercise. Planking was oh, a form God. of punishment. God. Um, wow. Well. You know, it was just like, we're going to make you suffer, but we're not going to give you any scars to prove yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it's just yeah. invisible scars. Um, yeah. <laughs> we, you know and then maybe like all most, most of our asian american listeners are like oh shit i remember and then people are thinking yeah, about yeah, yeah. how, how yeah. they were reprimanded yeah. and then maybe our uh non-asian friends were like they get away with that yeah right. the cops. <laughs> that's right. not the way it works dude right, right. um that's not the right. way it works um yeah. you, you talked about it openly in the book mm. and how, how was that received talked about um feedback from from family because it's something that you know might have been probably is something that nobody's really ever proud of. Nope. Um, my parents have not read the book, so I'll, I'll let you know <laughs> my brother. Okay. Yeah. Come, my brother come back and tell me. Yeah. My brother is the only <laughs> family member that's read it. You know, um, okay. I just think, you know, one of the, I, on my writing notebook, I, I, I taped a thing to it and it said, the thing that you're afraid to write, write that. Oh, um, I, I take no credit for it. I found it like on the internet and I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> Oscar Wilde says, you know, talent borrows, but genius steals. So I just like, I printed it out and I taped it to my notebook and I just, you know, like anytime, you know, I needed to like have the balls to write something that felt scary. Yeah. I was like, yeah, like you gotta, you know, I don't, I don't want to read. I didn't want to read a memoir. I didn't want people to mm. read a memoir that didn't take risks. Um, and I didn't sure. do it. And I didn't want to do it in a mean way. Like, I think if I just wanted to tell the truth as long as it warranted it. It's like, I don't want my parents to feel like I'm, I have an ax to grind. Like, I hope that, yeah. you know, when they read it, they can just be like, oh, we're complicated people. Like, Fook is complicated. I'm complicated. Our history is right. complicated. It's not all like, you know, rainbows and unicorns, as you said yeah. before. Um, but it's also not like Charles Dickens where, like, I grew up and, you know, my parents did the best they could, right? I mean. Yeah. We all, they all did. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And yet we also have to name what they did, right? So like sure. that's the complexity of it, right? Yeah. One of the coolest things that I think an author can do today, especially today in 2020, is to do the audiobook, which then hmm. puts so much more. I enjoy listening to books more than reading it myself because um, actually, distinction, I'll only do the audiobook if the author reads it and I'll read the hmm. paper book if somebody else reads it because that plays a critical role in how I receive the story um, because you feel the emotion, you feel the excitement, you feel the sadness as the person who wrote the words and actually gets to personify it audibly to you. Um, take us through that process. Was it just reading <laughs> words? Was it? <laughs> oh my God. It was so savage. Oh, so savage. You know, like, um, you know, my, <laughs> I wish someone had warned me about it. It was really hard. Um, because like you have to enunciate. So like I'm in a studio recording studio in Portland and like they have like a direct connection to New York digitally. My producer, um, Maddie Argeropoulos, she works for Macmillan Audio, is on my headphones and she's listening to the live feed as I'm recording. And then there's an engineer in another room. Um, and, you know, so it's like performative, but like, she wants you to kind of slow down like the hardest thing for me was the enunciation, you know, like you don't realize how kind of sloppy or 
you know, lazy your pronunciation can be. So like, you know, I wrote words that like, I really regret writing like sixth, you know, like, or <laughs> dude, breasts, like, like reading the word, saying the word breasts for spoiler alert to your audience. I talk about breasts and like, she's like, oh, I didn't hear the T, you know, cause like, you know, if you're talking fast, you're just like, oh, breasts, you know, with no T. So it was like just brutal stuff like that. Like I probably every paragraph I had to, I had to back up and re-record it. So I, I, we did like a hundred pages a day. So it was like nine to five, just like grinding. Um, uh. And like, re, like, I maybe had like one stretch where I had like, I read half a page where I didn't have to redo something. Um, it was like, it was savage. It was really hard. But um, I'm glad you're listening. Does it sound terrible? <laughs> no, it's amazing. And look, I'm telling especially memoirs. Right? Oh, brutal. Um, I mean, I don't know why people write memoirs and have somebody else narrate it for them because yeah, for sure. you're, you're letting somebody else take ownership of telling the story. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so you, you wrote the book over the course of many years and then, you know, you, you've let it sit. Obviously, the, the, um, the press process, the publishing process takes some time. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you most hopeful for on Tuesday when the book finally dropped? Um, I, I guess I'm just excited for people to read it. You know, like I think up until Tuesday, well, I mean, up until like they started doing the, the giveaways online, you know, maybe a, a dozen people had read it, you know, and um, you know, it's complicated because you write a book and you want people to read it and then you write it and then like no one's read it. You know, like my wife has obviously read it like a, a whole lot and my editor and my agent, but like, you know, and it's, it feels good to get feedback, right? Like, and, um, um, and to share your story with people, right? It's kind of like, you know, being a musician and only playing in your bathroom or your bedroom, you know, I mean, like it's like at some point you got to get out there. Like you want to see what yeah. kind of an impact it has. Um, so I guess I just... Um, I just am excited for people to read it and um, and hopefully they have a, you know, reaction with it, right? That it, yeah. you know, there's like some magic that happens if they read it. That would be great, you sure. know? I, I, uh, I do think there's, uh, I'm, I'm feeling the magic. I felt the magic. <laughs> Thanks, it's, <buddy. laughs> um, Thanks. No, it's, it's to, to give the, the audience context was the day after I recorded with Sopan, um, and he's texted me and he said, Hey, did you hear about this book? Um, I said, no, I actually don't know every single agent that book comes out. <laughs> yeah, me neither. I would love to. Um, <laughs> we don't have a platform that, you know, maybe, you know, we'll have to create one ourselves. Right. And <laughs> right, so, right. so I, I read the description and I was like, holy crap, I have to get him on my show um, <laughs> because I wanted to learn because mm. those of us who came in the seventies and eighties and nineties are now old enough to have the confidence that our stories matter. Mm. And we have the it's confidence. Everything else is an excuse, right? Mm. Oh, money access, you can publish your own books on Amazon for free, right? Like mm-hmm. or the internet, yeah. just write on Instagram. There's no, for sure. it's just right. getting to that point of making the decision too. Um, and it's not, anything to related with the show, but just as a person who has a similar background, uh, if we as a collective community don't get behind 100% our brothers and sisters who've made the scariest decision of their lives to tell their immigrant story and we don't go support it, then I'm sorry, you don't believe in <laughs> telling immigrant stories. You don't. I appreciate and, and look, it. I, and, and some things that have become crystal clear to me and very humbling to me as I've, um, this is now 
like the 40th episode or conversation I've had is I was blind. I, my blind spot was kids are refugees. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a shame we don't hear about the story in school, obviously. It's not something that American school systems teach us. Hmm. Um, but I was even blinded by my own privilege of having you know, hmm. a family that chose to come here hmm. and not looking at stories, looking for stories written by our Cambodian, Vietnamese, Lao brothers and sisters that were like, sure. dude, I'm not here by choice, but I'm finally getting to share it. Um, yeah. And so we talk about children and we talk about what do we want them to read? Not mm-hmm. later, now. Mm. What kind of world do we want to not only bring them into, but grow into as well mm. and not have um, the... Uh, refugee stories be something of a historical context of it's before my time. I don't know. And nobody lived to tell about it. Yeah. And also like, I think, you know, this is like, I think I feel like my, the book kind of covers terrain that hasn't been covered in the refugee story. Right. Like I feel, I feel like the narrative, at least in sort of dominant white culture is like, they struggled so hard and like they were on a fishing boat adrift at sea and like this, that, and the other. And then they got to America clip you know pull the curtains and then roll the credits right like yep. they got here happily ever after and it, it's like they got here and then like shit was still super complicated and like you know like so <laughs> Not easy no exactly and so like I, just, like I felt like that was my story you know like that it my story isn't my parents story right like my parents sure. story is theirs to tell it's not mm-hmm. i don't have permission to tell that story in as much as you know i am a part of it but um but like you know growing up in pa you know like and that was a big disconnect too right it's like my parents are like you know what we went through and i was like i don't but like it's also like i don't have a context for it like right but also you know what like study hall in seventh period sucks too you know (laughs) right Right. getting Um, right um being all all the childhood memories that are uncomfortable that we can some of us can can laugh about it now um And we just have to have to put out as much positive identifying content out there so that uh, whether it's our kids, our literal kids or their generation or somebody in college or a friend of yours and mine that has never yeah. really thought about leading into our um, born identities to storytell. Yeah. Um, share with us one bit of advice or perspective to somebody who right now knows that they want to share that they know exactly what they should share, but they're afraid for a host of reasons. Hmm. Gosh. Um, you know, I think, um, I, there's a great quote from Oscar Wilde, you know, and he says, you know, selfishness is not living your life the way you want to live selfishness is living asking someone else to live the way that you want them to live um so i so don't feel bad if you are living your life the way that you want to live you know and that means doing the things that you need to do um and it's you know as opposed to the life that your parents or your community expects Mm. you to live like that's true uh, to me like that's true selfishness right like you need to do X, Y, and Z because those are my expectations of you. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, um, so yeah. So I think, you know. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, for one, writing the book. Um, 
Oh, thanks for reading and, it, Jerry. <laughs> uh, look, I, it's um, and and we'll do uh, we'll, we'll did we did a different version, but uh, well, let's try something fun. I don't know when we're going to upload this, but sure, if, sure. if you're listening, if, if if you're listening to this, um, and I can't ever say when it's done, but um, first three people to DM me and Fuke at the same time on what your favorite part of this interview was, um, we'll send you a book. I'll send you a book. Um, <laughs> thanks, Jerry. And, and we'll figure out a way to fuke to sign it because, yeah. you know, um, that way, you know, it's it's real. Um, uh, we end the sh- <laughs> it's it, it, one, one for writing the book, but two, um, sharing about it, right? Because one, every work, every book, every show, every interview, every little bit um, nudges all of us as a community together to a collective point of yes, not only, uh, you know, yes, we can was, was, um, you know, immortalized uh, 12 years ago during, uh, the campaign. Um, but I think even more important than that before we can, um, we have to realize that yes, we are Hmm. and that we are who we are. We cannot change the past. We cannot change the past of our home countries and the, wars that they fought or the things mm. that our parents went through. But we have to realize that, yes, we are proud of where we come from, that, yes, we are going to then tell everybody what our story is. And that, as, as you mentioned, many of us carry multiple PhDs in whiteness and how to <laughs> um, uh, assimilate, which mm-hmm. is a word that we grew up with now that I fundamentally don't believe is the right way to live life here. Mm-hmm. Um and so I believe, genuinely believe your book will inspire countless people. Um, maybe reading that book won't be the thing uh, that gets them to write on their own, but it certainly will move them closer to um, to that place uh, that makes them feel comfortable that it was all along. And, and as we alluded to, um, right now might not be your time to tell the story. People often have shared with me, like, you know, you love talking to people. You ask great questions. Like why now? I said, I, I, one, I don't know why now, but if I started this, uh, let's assume podcasts were available when I was 22 mm-hmm. makes for a different conversation. I don't mm-hmm. have the additional 14 years of life. Mm-hmm. to to ask the fun stuff and to share at the you know on the same level so everybody has their time um a lot of it is luck um you're here through a series of literal s- split second decisions that for sure um and, and now we have to then make the most of it right mm-hmm. um make the most of our parents and grandparents sacrifice and uh, not be ashamed of anything that they've done but as mm-hmm. you mentioned call them out on their shit uh, mm-hmm. you can do both. You can yeah. be thankful and wishfully thinking it might've been a little bit different and, and less yeah. abusive and that's okay. Yeah, um, absolutely. Thank you again. We, uh, end the show in the same way. Um, we, we end the show, uh, the same way, uh, going back to the title of the show, the Year Asian Americans, as we've talked about this entire conversation is letting each other know that it's okay. It's okay to feel, it's okay to experience, and it's okay to verbalize and um, share those thoughts. And so would love for you to help uh, finish out the show and share 
anything you'd like with the greater Asian American community mm. uh, by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, we are complicated. We are um, so many things. Um, I think about um, the words of Walt Whitman in his poem, Song of Myself, and he says, do I contradict myself? So then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. Um, and so do you. You contain multitudes. Thank you. Um, first time somebody's quoted Walt Whitman in, in the letter portion, but I think given what you've spent years studying, it's only appropriate that <laughs> you, you, you drop classical bombs of quotes um, as we close out the show. Um, Fuke, thank you so much. Oh, this has been... Nice. That's great. Um, no, look, I so many of us, and I, you know, I hope it doesn't sound like I'm belaboring the point, but um, many of us read books because we're forced to mm. growing up, right? What's what's on the syllabus? What is the reading list? What is yeah. available? Um, and then we sort of stop reading when we grow up, um, and then maybe we pick up a book because it has tactical tips for us to do something better at our jobs, mm. um, and we get busy with life, and rarely do we ever get a chance to read books for fun. Yeah, And even when we do, we lean towards stories like Star Wars and mm -hmm. other fun things yeah. that are yeah, more culturally sure. relevant. Yep. Um, but I hope that people who are listening to this take the time. And it doesn't have to be Fuchs' book. Mm. I hope it is because it's beautifully written and I think it's okay. an amazing story. But yeah. go read Soul Pan's book. Go read yeah. you know yeah, yeah, um, yeah. anybody's book that looks like you, that resonates with you because your story will resonate with somebody who's a child of a refugee far more than me. Mm. Like it's gotten me emotional, but I can't imagine what it does to somebody whose parents actually lived it. Mm. Um, and different stories hit me different than it would you. And that's okay. Sure. Yeah. We're not a monolith. Exactly. We get it. Yeah. We're but a multitude. We, have so, we are a multitude. But yeah. if you put all the Venn diagrams together, there's a giant overlap. And yeah. that's us being Asian American, yep. being uh, treated differently, feeling like the perpetual model minority outsider. And in this moment, of COVID-19 related stupid hate crimes, anti-Asian sentiment, and just even feeling even more so out of place in this country that we call home, that is our home. Hmm. Uh, stories like yours really make people feel um, like we can dream of an America that we want to be. So hmm. thanks, man. Um, I, I look forward to the day that we can celebrate in person yeah, um, I don't know what the midpoint of Portland, Maine and LA is, but let's not meet there. Um, <laughs> My parents live uh, on the West well, Coast, I'll let you know. Yeah. Well, let, let's go to Orange County and, and you yeah. know, go, go hang out. Um, you know, I, 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 I grew up there. So yeah, eat some pho, drink some boba, and uh, we'll have great. a blast, man. Thank awesome. you so much. Hey, thank you, Derek. Um, be yeah. best, best of luck to you in, in the coming weeks. Um, yeah. Go buy the book. Uh, email us, DM us if you want to win one of these books. And uh, best of luck. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Jerry. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. What a what a great guy. Um, such an amazing story. Read the book if you can. If you're still listening to this early, shoot me a note. We'll get that book over to you however we can. If you found this story inspirational or fun, uh, share it with a friend or two. And let me know what you think about the show, um, either in the Instagram DM or through email. Hello at TheAsianAmericans.com. Follow and like us on Instagram and on Facebook at The Asian Americans. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating, write a review, 
And thanks again so much. Stay healthy, everybody. Stay safe. Stay happy. And I'll see you next time.